0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 98 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is, She's Been There, an interview with Dr. Casey Kelly. My name is Richard Johanneson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Casey Kelly. Dr. Kelly is a brilliant integrative doctor and the founder of Case Integrative Health in Chicago, Illinois. While she was in college, Dr. Kelly started to feel short of breath while walking up a hill. By the time she was a student at the Ohio State University College of Medicine, Dr. Kelly's symptoms worsened. She developed a high heart rate, extreme fatigue, and brain fog. She went to a conference on integrative medicine where she heard the famous Dr. Richard Horowitz speak and decided to get tested for Lyme disease. It came back positive. Amazingly, Dr. Kelly made it through medical school and her residency while battling Lyme disease. She started her treatment journey by taking antibiotics, but they stopped helping her. She happened to be working at an integrative health clinic at the time and she saw patients being healed by homeopathic methods of treatment she decided to try them for herself and her symptoms started to improve dr kelly's lyme disease journey doesn't end there this brilliant superhero began to see her symptoms in her patients and started testing them for lyme disease dr kelly knew she needed to help other people suffering from lyme disease now her practice focuses almost exclusively on treating Lyme disease. On a personal note, I was recently bitten by a tick, and I couldn't think of any other doctor in the country that I would rather treat with, and I called Dr. Kelly's office, and I became one of her patients. We are so excited and thankful to have her on our podcast today. Hey, Dr. Casey Kelly, how are you?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, we're blessed to have you. So, Dr. Kelly, tell us about where you live
1: i live in chicago illinois
0: cool and what do you do in chicago illinois
1: i am the founder of case integrative health which is an integrative medical practice here in the city
0: and what's the significance of case in the name of your business
1: well i mean to be fair it's a little bit of a nod to my first name casey but it's also in reference to case by case because every single person needs to be approached individually And every person with Lyme or with fatigue or with stomach issues is different. And so we have to approach everybody differently um, and individually.
0: Well, that is really cool. So, Dr. Kelly, tell us about where you grew up.
1: I am from a small town in Ohio, Marion, Ohio, which is where President Harding hails from. It's our claim to fame. Um, Small town, grew up with my parents and an older brother.
0: And um, what was your life like during your childhood?
1: I had a happy childhood. Yeah. Played around outside, ran around to the neighbor's houses, rode my bike for miles. Great time.
0: So would it be fair to me to assume that you were a geeky, smart kid because you're now a doctor?
1: That's fair to assume. Totally type A, straight A student, total nerd, rule follower, all the things. <laughs>
0: So what were you dreaming of when you were a kid? Did you always want to be a doctor? I did.
1: I did. I was the weirdo who liked to go to the doctor's office. Um, but yeah, since I was little, I wanted to be a doctor.
0: And what do you think triggered your desire or your dream to be a doctor?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm honestly not sure. It was just always there in the background.
0: And were you always good in the sciences?
1: Yep. Yeah. You- I always liked sciences. I always liked music and arts and things as well. But totally got into the science.
0: So when you were growing up, you were always working towards becoming a doctor.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. For, I think for a hot minute, I wanted to be a singer, an actress or a musician, but then I realized I'm not very flexible and that wasn't going to work. So I had to find a different plan. (laughs) All right.
0: So um, what type of work did you do to define what college you would go to and what steps did you take to qualify yourself to go to that college?
1: I explored different colleges. I wanted to stay in Ohio. Um, I wanted to get a good education. I wanted to make sure that I was going to go to a school where I could get into med school. So, and I went and visited several and, and really I just, I picked the one that I felt the most home at when I went to. Didn't feel like I had to put on airs or be something I wasn't. I, I went to a college where I felt immediately like I was at home. Um, And that's how I ended up at the University of Dayton.
0: And was your experience at uh, the University of Dayton uh, in Ohio a good experience?
1: It was amazing. College was fun.
0: (laughs) Now, let me walk you back to your childhood for a minute. Um, Were you living in a rural community?
1: Not rural, no, but very small town. Um, Well, I guess not very small in in that sense. Um, Surrounded by rural, uh, absolutely, but I lived in the, the town itself.
0: And did you engage in a lot of outdoors activities?
1: I, I played around in all of our yards, like the collective yards of all the neighbors a lot. Um, and I always went to summer camp in Girl Scout camp in Ohio. I went to summer camp in Michigan. I was always running around doing, doing those things.
0: So, as a, as a geeky kid uh, who was good at science and who played around in the outdoors and went to summer camp all the time, what do you know about ticks? Absolutely nothing. So just so that our, so our listeners are clear, um, you were living in a relatively rural community, although you were in the, I guess the, you said the more um, downtown portion of it. Uh, you were somebody who played outside. You were uh, a good student. You went to a good school. You went to a good college, yet you knew nothing at all about ticks, tick checks, or Lyme disease.
1: I do not remember a single bit about that from growing up
0: so when's the first time you heard about lyme disease um
1: probably
0: college or med school
1: probably med school
0: briefly right. yeah and, well tell us about that so you um you you graduate from college and you decide that you're going to go to med school and talk to us about what that process was like what was the med school application process like
1: it's it's quite a thing um there's a really big test you have to take called an MCAT and you have to do well enough on that to get an application, you know, to be able to, to apply for school um, and get into a decent school, the better the MCAT, you know, the higher your chances of getting into a better school. Um, there's interviews, you know, grade point, average letters, all of, all of those things. Um I'm interested. Like my mom was really sick at the time. My mom was, um, diagnosed with cancer and was passing away from cancer when I had to take my MCATs. I remember calling her and and telling her I did well. And yeah, that was, that was a time. Let's add that stress to the mix, but yeah, getting into med school, um, it's a, it's quite a process. Absolutely.
0: So you ultimately uh, did well in your MCATs and you started to apply to medical schools and did you take the same approach to your medical school selection process that you took with your college selection process?
1: Yes, I think I, at that point, was really more interested in going to a bigger name school. I wanted, there are several medical schools in Ohio. It's one of the states that has more med schools than others. And I wanted to go to a big one. I wanted to go to the best of the best. So it was much more important to me at that time to get the big name.
0: Right. And, yeah. and, and what medical school did you ultimately decide to attend?
1: To the Ohio State University.
0: All right. So you went from small town to small college to now the big Ohio State University.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how was your experience at Ohio State?
1: Medical school was awful.
0: And why was medical school awful?
1: <laughs> well, I think I didn't know at the time, but I was starting to get sick. And so that played a role. But the stress medical school and the amount of information that is coming at you is instead of a garden hose it's a fire hose and it it certainly steps you up from here memorize this and kind of to looking under the surface and, and what does this mean and very different amount of that than i was used to and i was absolutely starting to get sick and my brain wasn't working as well and i couldn't focus and read and it was just absolutely nonstop. 20 hours a day of stuff of learning and, and pressure. And it was hard. I, I was not a fan of medical school.
0: At all. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's walk back now because this is a Lyme disease podcast and we do want to get to, you know, when you first started showing your symptoms of your tick disease and how they presented.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I really think it was college where it started, but I didn't really know it. All of a sudden, I, I, could, I was an athlete in, in high school and a dancer and show choir and constantly active. And then I went to college and I, I couldn't walk up the hill to my dorm without being short of breath. I couldn't exercise without needing an hour and a half nap. It didn't make sense. Um, I just thought it was the stress of college. Um, and med school, it just progressed to very potsy. Um, symptoms where I couldn't stand up without being lightheaded without my heart racing and feeling like it was been a pound out of my chest. Um, lots of brain fog could not focus, just felt really horrible. Um, and you know, what's medical students tend to be hypochondriacs. You learn about something and you think you have it. Um, but I knew that like, this was different. Like this mm-hmm. didn't feel my peers were not this uh, affected. By medical school. So I dug into it and I did find pots and I made a doctor give me a tilt table study and I'm, you know, tried all the medicines and <laughs> tried to get myself feeling better and kind of push that. So at least I knew there was something going but, on.
0: But Let's talk about the onset of the symptoms and that time in your life. So do you remember which year in college you began to show the symptoms of your tick disease?
1: The, the fatigue started as a freshman.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and how did that impact you socially? Did you have a different social experience when you were in college than your friends because you began to show these symptoms?
1: Um, I don't think that it affected me socially so much in college.
0: Okay. Now, what about intellectually? Were you having any challenges? Clearly, you're intellectually gifted. Do you believe that your college experience was difficult or more difficult than it would have been for you because you started to show the symptoms of your tick disease?
1: Maybe, maybe. Um, I think I was, I think I was such a high achiever that I could overcompensate for a lot of stuff in college. And college, there were a couple classes that seemed hard, but overall, it seemed very manageable. And so I was able able to overcompensate during college.
0: Okay. So college wasn't so challenging that the developing symptoms impacted your capacity to be successful, but did it have any impact on you as your symptoms were developing during your college experience? Were you um, getting more and more um, uh, fatigue or suffering more and more fatigue and therefore not able to uh, enjoy the entire experience? Or did you just sort of work through it socially, emotionally, physically, and not really have anything impacting you during your college experience.
1: I think what was nice about college is I was able to create my schedule so I could go home and take naps. And a lot of people took naps. So it was socially acceptable to, to do that. Um, it didn't seem weird to do that. Um, and I was able to, you know, do those kind of little life hacks that I probably didn't even realize I was doing to, to do that. Now also being a nerd, my social life was impacted because I had to study, (laughs) you know? Um, But I don't think it was that, that demanding, that big of a change in college overall. Um, And, and I had the excuse too, of having to stay in and study as well. So I'm sure I used those things unbeknownst to me. It's probably a lot of subconscious support. Uh,
0: And And it also sounds to me that uh, despite having a a whole range of uh, colleges that you can choose from, you decided to wait until medical school to go to the place where you'd have your greatest challenge, which you then, okay, now step up and you now go to medical school, right? Mm -hmm. And and you're for the first time being challenged in a way, at least intellectually, that you had never been challenged before. And unfortunately, you shared with us, your mom was sick as well, and you're going through those challenges. And tell us how Um, your Lyme disease, what you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms were accelerated based on both the personal challenges that you're facing with your mom's health and now the intellectual challenges you're facing by going to one of the best medical schools in the country.
1: Well, my mom passed away right before my senior year of college. And so not having her, and she was my best friend. We had a great relationship. And so not having her to lean on in med school was really hard like all of a sudden that big support system, totally gone, totally gone. And when you're in a place that's challenging you in ways that you never expected and you're surrounded by all these other brilliant people and struggling and you don't have that person, you don't have your person anymore. That was hard. That was really hard.
0: And, and so Dr. Kelly, tell me how you think that impacted your, um, the acceleration of your Lyme symptoms. You're, you're going through this really challenging time um, intellectually, and you don't have the support system that has been so important to you during the entirety of your life up to that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you believe that um, that was a triggering event for the acceleration of your Lyme symptoms?
1: I never thought about it that way, but you make a really good point because it's that the amount of extra stress that that brought to an already stressed out situation is phenomenal, like unbelievable amount of extra stress. And when you don't have an outlet for your stress, your adrenals, you know, fade.
0: And, and we know that Lyme is an opportunistic disease. And we know that our, our immune system, or I guess you're going to talk to us more about that. Our immune system has the capacity certainly to manage Boreella in most cases. And that in most cases with at least the, people who suffering from chronic Lyme disease that we've interviewed, there's been an event that, um, that causes their acute symptoms to become chronic symptoms, and that's when the world changes. And I'm just wondering whether or not the experiences that you are now having, the high stress experiences you are now having, are now causing these symptoms to accelerate. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're now studying medicine at that same time, and you're sort of learning and feeling a whole bunch of things for the first time. So share with us what that was like.
1: Overwhelming, I think, is a really good way to describe it. Um, And it was just more of a put one foot in front of the other and just try to get through the day. Um, Try to make sure you're remembering to eat food and drink food and just get yourself through while knowing that something's up and not knowing what it is and being surrounded by by doctors and people who are teaching you about medicine, but no one can – Put all of it together is frustrating just adds to the mix as well
0: no so you you shared with me a minute ago that you knew your experience was different than everyone else's you weren't just you weren't just sort of living the young medical student psychosomatic kind of experience you knew something was real Uh Um, now when you knew something was real and you were now becoming a doctor and studying the process of doctoring and you're around all these other doctors and you're sharing this experience with them what kind of preliminary diagnosis were you coming up with?
1: Well, my first diagnosis that I came up with was POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia. That fit the bill for sure. Why? Standing was difficult. Um, and you stand a lot as a med student. Um, and you stand on rounds and then people start badgering with you with questions while your brain's not working. My heart rate was through the roof my baseline heart rate was 100 at rest if not higher and then when you when i stood up it would go up to 170 200 um and wouldn't calm down um extreme fatigue uh and i knew i should be tired but it was a different kind of tired
0: and different I, than everyone else
1: correct yeah um, you didn't, re- and, and the brain fog, like my brain was not putting A plus B equals C. Like it was just not getting there. It wasn't connecting the dots like it had my whole life. You know, I was used to my brain working and coming through for me, but it was not coming through for me. I knew there was something going on. And when I started to dig into it, pots just always kept coming up. Um, so that's where I kind of dug in at that point.
0: Can we pause on the brain fog issue? Um, so you you said that you were being challenged, you, I guess you and your colleagues were being constantly challenged by either the professors or the doctors that you were working with. And I guess you saw your colleagues answering questions in a way that you were struggling. Is that what was happening?
1: Yeah. And when someone would be in your face, asking you a question, like demanding answers, and I couldn't come up with the right words, I couldn't find it. Like I knew it was there and I knew I knew it, but I couldn't, it, like it wouldn't come out.
0: So just let, let's, let's pause on that point, because I think that's really important. Uh, is, is the brain fog that you were experiencing at that time preventing you from thinking, or is it preventing you from getting the thoughts from your brain to your mouth to answer the question?
1: I think it was probably both. Yeah, I mean, in the, that the particular example I gave, it was for sure word finding, like tip of your tongue, it can't get out. And then the more anxiety and stress that they put on you by asking it, just forget it. it there was no way I had, I didn't know the answer. Right. Um, but like when I was sitting and trying to study and remember things, I couldn't remember things like I used to remember. I couldn't, I could read the same paragraph four times and not understand what I just read. It was totally new to me. I didn't, I didn't, that was new.
0: Okay. So you, you were having a different experience during this part of your, of your educational experience than you had at any time in your life, and you saw that your colleagues were not having that same set of challenges. Yeah. So you had two different points of reference that mm-hmm. were causing you to believe, hey, there's something wrong with me, and you settle yeah. on POTS. Mm-hmm. So now, did you settle on POTS, or did you have um, a consultation with either a doctor or a team of doctors that caused you all to collectively come to the POTS diagnosis?
1: Well, I thought it was POTS because I read about POTS and it seemed to fit. I also got tested for ADHD because I thought maybe I had that. And I did do testing for that. They said I had it, but they also said I didn't need medication. So I don't know what that means, but I just went with it. So I went down the POTS route more and I, you know, this makes sense. I think I have this. So I went and saw a doctor and said, I think I have this. So I saw a cardiologist, I made them do the tilt table study. I came to them with, I think I need this medication. I think I need this medication. And we tried a bunch of different things. Um, so I kind of drove it uh, for sure. Absolutely. It was me driving that, but I did go through in the steps to get the formal diagnosis. Okay, so one of the things
0: that I think um, is often a challenge with any experience in life is we have to find good coaches, but we also have to be willing to be coached, right? So um, were you a good patient at that time, or were you driving this to some conclusion that you thought you needed it to come to so that you can move forward with your educational experience?
1: Oh, great question. I'm I'm a horrible patient. Yeah, I'm I'm a horrible patient. And this probably started back then too. I for sure was like, here's my diagnosis. Here are the meds I want. Like that was, I was trying to doctor myself.
0: Okay. So do you think that had an impact on you getting to the diagnosis of Lyme disease earlier?
1: Maybe, but I don't think that there was enough knowledge in the doctors that I was working with to... Like, they weren't curious either. Everyone just, everybody else just was like, nah, this is just, you're stressed out. You're a stressed out med student. You're fine. So there wasn't any curiosity in the people that I was seeing to go, why do you have POTS? What's underlying this? Sure, it could be stress, but what else could it be? There was no curiosity. And I also, at that point, didn't really know what integrative medicine was. So I wasn't seeking out that mentality and that kind of mindset. I was just going through the conventional regular medicine route.
0: Okay, because that's what you were studying, right? Correct. Okay. So let's talk about how your symptoms developed and how your diagnosis developed over time. So you, you now settle on this POTS diagnosis. And what are you doing to deal with your POTS? Is it having any positive impact on your healing journey? And what else is uh, developing because of your failure to receive a proper diagnosis?
1: I tried various treatments with various success. You know, I'm a a beta blocker and alpha blocker at one point, compression stockings, salt water, you know, doing, doing all of the pots things, but symptoms continued to progress. I developed a lot of GI issues as well. Um, And fatigue just was just continued to, everything just continued to progress. Nothing got better in through residency. And then now you're in residency where you're working 30, 36 hour shifts. Like there's no chance to heal in that spot. So you're just trying to take different meds to patch you up and get you through. Um,
0: So what impact are all these developing symptoms having on your social life? I mean, do med students have a social life to begin with? And if they do, was yours different than your colleagues' social lives?
1: There was a lot of socializing happening in med school that I was flabbergasted that people could socialize that much because it didn't make sense to me because I was too tired and I needed to study. Um, So I had no social life. I lost like all of my college friends. I lost all of my college friends because I had no ability to keep up with that and keep those relationships going. Um, I made some good friends in med school, but like there was no socializing in med school. For you? For me, yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, with the friendships that you lost from when you were in college, were any of those people questioning whether or not you were really sick?
1: No, because I don't think... In med school, even, it wasn't fully, like, we hadn't really gotten, I hadn't really gotten to my full diagnosis, so everyone just, you know, assumed I was busy in school, and we all just blamed it on that.
0: Okay, and so, let's talk about what other impacts this had on you. Now, you were a high achiever, right? You were, you were the geek in high school, you went to a really good college, you went to one of the best medical schools in the country, and now you're floundering, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How did that impact you emotionally?
1: Oh, you start to question yourself, you know, and there was a lot of self, self-hate um, and it felt like a failure and just wasn't in a good place. I did not come out of med school or residency for that matter in a good psychological space, Mm-mm. mad, angry, not a good place. It changed me and it was not a good change.
0: So now Talk to us about your educational experience at, at The Ohio State University. Um, what was the experience like and do you think it prepared you to have the tools you needed to diagnose people who were suffering from Lyme disease?
1: I think that the education that I received in med school was great. I, I came out of there feeling very confident in my overall conventional medicine Knowledge, I felt that that was good. Um, we were not really taught about Lyme. Um, I jokingly put syphilis on every single differential diagnosis because syphilis was the great mimicker, but we never saw syphilis. Like you just kind of talked about it, but you know, the, I think the conversation we had about Lyme was probably like thirty-minute little like snippet about a bullseye rash, two weeks of meds, it can affect your heart. Moving on, um, and I didn't even know. At that point, that it was, you know, syphilis is Lyme's dumb cousin, as I call it. I didn't know that at the time, but I just put syphilis on everything because syphilis was the great mimicker and it was just my kind of running gag, my running joke. But I didn't really learn about Lyme when I was in med school, not in Ohio. Like it was not a big thing. It probably wasn't even understood that it existed in Ohio. Um, And so I did not come out of med school really understanding the breadth of the effects of Lyme.
0: Okay, but now I'm asking you the bigger question. Not whether or not Ohio State University is a great medical school. We all know that it is. Not whether or not you had a good educational experience. We're sure you did. But you studied in a very traditional setting with a traditional format. So my question is, do you believe you walked out of that very good school that provided you with a very good educational experience with the tools you would need to diagnose someone who is suffering from a multi-germ disease.
1: I don't think I had any confidence in that until I really dove into integrative medicine and functional medicine and learning about the system as a whole and my constant questioning about, well, but why, but why, but why? But that was always me driving that conversation um, throughout that medical part, as-
0: but, but Dr. Kelly, that wasn't a part of your... Right. Educational experience at, at the Ohio State, correct? Right,
1: correct. And not in residency either. It wasn't my residency experience either.
0: Okay, so let's stay there. Let's stay, let's stay in medical school because I think this is really important because quite frankly, most Limeys are frustrated with the traditional medical community. And you know, the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we frustrated with the community who is clearly that is clearly failing us because of the educational training that they receive? Or should we be frustrated with the community because they are not creative, they're not asking creative questions, they're boxed in by medical, uh, by the insurance companies, they're boxed in by medical boards. I mean, we really have to explore all of these different pieces because the community, the Lyme community is being failed by the medical community and we really have to understand where that failure is coming from so that we can overcome those challenges. So let's stay with your, your educational experience. You got about 30 minutes of training on Lyme. Uh, you, uh, you didn't have, you, you were suffering from Lyme disease symptoms and you can't diagnose yourself at that time, even though you had a different experience than your medical colleagues, uh, medical school colleagues, and you had a different experience than you ever had during your geeky life. You're a high achiever. You're an intellectually gifted young woman, but you can't diagnose yourself. And I can't help but to think that the reason you couldn't diagnose yourself is because the medical training that you were receiving at that time didn't give you the tools to self-diagnose. Tell me why I'm wrong.
1: I, I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> um, yeah, I think conventional medicine has its own place and it has a really good spot in the world. Like We need that branch of medicine, but these kind of chronic infections are not your your typical presentations of things are not cut and dry they're not black and white um and doctors are very much kind of in their little boxes a lot of the times they're they're constricted by that um and they don't break out from that and branch out from that and some of it is the training and some of it's the mentality and yeah
0: uh, I can't disagree so, with you. you know, we, we interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls on a couple of occasions on this podcast. And we, we, we actually love Dr. Rawls to death. And we call him the doctor's doctor. He's a fourth-generation doctor. Literally, his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were doctors. Dr. Rawls gets bitten by a tick. Dr. Rawls has Lyme disease. And Dr. Rawls couldn't get diagnosed with Lyme disease until very late in his experience. So this is not doctors failing patients. Doctors are failing doctors as well, right? So you know there is an element of, uh, of, of the traditional medical educational experience that doesn't give you the tools to diagnose us, no less yourself. So let's move forward. So you, you now go through your residency, you're getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and are you changing your diagnosis? Are you going from POTS to other things as time is going on?
1: Not through residency so much. Um, I stuck with POTS um, through most of it. I, I did end up doing an integrative medicine rotation, so I did some gut healing um, and kind of got to that. Um, it wasn't really until after residency where I started to, to dig in a little bit more um, into the fatigue aspect and adrenal fatigue and integrative medicine and all of that.
0: So let's talk about the integrative medical portion of your residency. How did that surface and what attracted you to that rotation?
1: The drive and desire started in med school, actually, where I was asking why and, you know, why does this person have diabetes? Why aren't we talking about their diet? Why are we just giving them more pills for their side effects from X, Y and Z? You know, why, why, why? And then, then in residency, I just kept pushing that envelope and Very quickly was the voodoo doc in my class because, you know, I don't know, Casey, what vitamin should we give that person? (laughs) You know, maybe vitamin C because they have scurvy. I don't know. Let's look at the picture, right? Um, And diving more in, I started to go to conferences and residency about holistic medicine, about integrative medicine to educate myself because I knew stuff was out there. I knew there were people who thought differently. And so I started to look for my people who had that mentality and um, was able to create my own like self um, special rotation with an integrative doctor in the city and kind of kept pushing that and pushing that. And I knew in residency that that's where I was headed. I knew I was going into integrative medicine. There was no other way. Nothing else made sense to me. And, you know, the science and evidence behind functional medicine and integrative medicine was there. It's solid. And why is no one else seeing this? Like, why are we like patients would come into the clinic with 23 medications? Why do we not think that's wrong? Like, why are we not talking to this person about their diet? I don't understand. So I really, it was all self-directed. And when you start going to conferences and talking to people, and then you figure out the next best conference to go to, and then other people to meet and once you're
0: in it, you can't get out. So what's going on with your health at that time? As you're becoming more and more integrated into the integrative medicine um, community, um, what's going on with your health? And and I can't help but to think that you weren't getting better. You didn't have an understanding of what was going on with you. And on some level, that was also driving you to get to the foundational elements of what's wrong with your patients.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. You,
0: You being your first patient.
1: Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's why a lot of doctors get into this field. Um, so something wrong with themselves or one of their family members that we can't figure out. Um, my health, actually my health started to, to get better after residency and it's like, there was ups and downs, but not once I stopped taking 30 hour, 36 hour shifts, I started to feel better, believe it or not. Um, which is weird, right? Um, Getting some sleep, right? Weird. Um, but yeah, getting into finding an integrative doc who helped diagnose me with adrenal fatigue was kind of a tipping point to my health starting to get better. It was, so it stopped, at least it stopped getting worse. Okay. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So, so you're, you're sort of at a plateau, but you're, you're not well, right? You know you're not well. It's not declining, but you're not well. So how do you get to your Lyme diagnosis?
1: Uh, after going to several conferences on integrative medicine, I think I heard Dr. Horowitz speak and was like, like his lectures are so densely packed with information and he linked Bartonella to POTS and my antenna went up, but I didn't believe it. I was like, no, I've heard of Lyme. It's really controversial. I don't know if I want to get into that. No, 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 it can't be. I heard him talk again. I was like, okay, fine. I am listening. <laughs> Bide. So I started to dig into it more and it just started to, everything started to make sense. It's like, Oh man, I, Oh man, I got to get tested. I got to look into this. I got to figure this out. Um, and I, I mean, I actually just did regular conventional Western Blatt and was positive. So that started to the whole, the whole tumble into this, to this field.
0: Now, did you discover that pots is often a um, either an early diagnosis or a misdiagnosis for Lyme disease before you had your Lyme diagnosis?
1: Can you ask that again?
0: Had you ever heard when you had your POTS diagnosis that in many cases, people are misdiagnosed with POTS when they are actually suffering from Lyme disease?
1: No, no, no. And I, I mean, my initial foray into POTS and trying to look at a lot of the research and some of the plays there's actually, a place in Toledo that was doing a lot of research on POTS. There really wasn't a whole lot of talk about infectious causes. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't link those two together as an infectious cause of POTS until until I was out practicing and went, started going to the integrative um, conferences.
0: So how old were you when you were ultimately diagnosed with your Lyme disease?
1: Let's say 28.
0: Okay. So what was your life like before the diagnosis? Meaning, did you have a social life? What was your professional life like? What was going on in your personal life?
1: Um, I didn't have much of a social life because I was a med student and then resident. Um, I was married, but, you know, exhausted all the time. Um, Pretty angry from everything that was going on with me not feeling better, with school being difficult, with all the things that we've talked about um, I was not in a good place. I didn't have a lot of friends at that point, like just kind of lonely and isolating inadvertently.
0: You said you were, you were married?
1: I'm married. Yeah.
0: So we, you were married at that time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got married between medical school and residency.
0: So what impact did your anger and all of the symptoms that you had from your undiagnosed Lyme disease have on your husband?
1: Uh, hard. Being a caretaker is really, really, really hard. And I'm not sure he knew fully what he was signing up for because, you know, we got married and things just continued to tank. And, you know, residency was really hard with the hours and the stress of that. And, you know, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could be the wife I wanted to be. And so, you know, there was, you know, our relationship absolutely was strained from all of it. Um, It's hard to watch somebody go through something that you don't know what's wrong with them. You don't know how to help them. And they're just kind of grumpy and don't feel good all the time, but they don't look sick. And so you don't understand why they can't just like go play golf with you or whatever, you know, why do they have to take a three hour nap every day? That's hard on a loved one and a caregiver.
0: And did, uh, did your husband ever voice concerns to you about whether or not you really were sick or were there other things going on with you?
1: No, I don't think he ever, like, cause he saw, you know, even though, like I said, a lot of Limey's and myself included didn't quote unquote look sick, but he saw that I couldn't do what I used to do. So he knew that there was something going on and that was kind of helpless to help at that point. Um, I'm sure there were times I'm sure, and I'm making an inference for him, which is probably not fair because he's not here to speak for himself, but I'm sure there were times where he was just like, come on, you're fine. Get up. Let's go do something, you know, just because that's that's pretty typical responses, I think, to that when you're with somebody.
0: So, now let's fast forward to your Lyme diagnosis. You indicated that you had taken a traditional, uh, did you take the traditional blue tier, both the Elisa and the Western Blot, or did you just start with one? Just the Western Blot. Okay, and the Western Blot showed that you were, you were positive for what?
1: For Borrelia, for Lyme. Yeah. In a Lyme literate sense though, I didn't have all five, I only had four.
0: <laughs> okay, and so you had four bands. And then what other testing did you do after you had um, after you had tested positive for Lyme on the Western block?
1: I didn't at that point, I just jumped in and, and got treated. Okay, um, so,
0: so let's talk about that. So um, you now have a diagnosis. And how do you feel about having diagnosis? Is it, is it exciting? Is it scary? Is it both? How did you feel at that moment when you finally have a diagnosis?
1: I think it was both, but I was mostly excited. It's was like, okay, I know how to, I, let's do this. We can tackle this. Yeah.
0: And um, how about from a social standpoint? Did that give you tools to explain to the people who you thought you might have been disappointing that um, you now have an, a way of describing, for example, to your husband? What's wrong with you?
1: I think it does but it doesn't because people don't understand. So, you know, you get that typical response of, "Oh, cool, so you can take 2 weeks of antibiotics and you're done?" Or what's what's Lyme disease? That doesn't make sense. And then it, you know, and then people are like, "Oh, I read about it and that's not a thing. Chronic Lyme doesn't exist." You know, you get all the different responses. But generally, I was I'm very lucky to have supportive people who took me for my word and helped me walk through the process.
0: Okay, so now you said you were jumping in. What does that mean? What, what does jumping into treating your Lyme disease mean at that stage in your life, in your career?
1: That was still fairly early on in my education on Lyme, obviously. Um, so I went medications, like let's do antibiotics. Let's kind of attack this from okay. more of that, um, more of the conventional antibiotic route.
0: What antibiotics did you take and how did you respond to the antibiotics?
1: I started with doxycycline um, and tinidazole, and I herxed a lot, and I got a sunburn from doxycycline in the springtime in Copenhagen, Denmark. I didn't think I was that close to the sun, but um, so I had that, like, that was a fun, fun side effect. Um, But
0: wait a minute, Dr. Kelly, (laughs) you are a medical doctor. Right? Yeah. you studied you studied <laughs> uh-huh. um, uh, medications and uh, and um, medi- medic- medication reactions why were you in the
1: sun right and I wore sunscreen but I was out and about and I forgot to reapply and I will never do that again
0: <laughs> so um, so how did how did your first round of antibiotics go other than the herxing and I do want to get to herxing almost immediately okay
1: um, it was interesting because I'm always cold. I am always, always, always cold. If my husband's out in t-shirt and shorts, I'm, always, I'm, I'm in a sweatshirt, right? I'm always cold. I started on the doxycycline and my body temperature changed. So there was one day for sure when I put, um, I just had a, a light t-shirt on and my husband's like, Oh, if she's in a t-shirt. It must be really hot outside. So he goes outside thinking it's hot and it was not hot. He, that's him. That was his light bulb moment going, Oh, Oh, this is doing something. Like yeah, it is, um, and um, I also then like eventually my mouth broke out in all of these horrible ulcers and I couldn't smile or talk, um, so that's when I actually that's when I decided I was done with the the antibiotics. Like they've run their course, I need to come up with a different route. And I had stopped progressing too at that point. I kind of I had gone through the herxing, I'd had that die off, and I had some success and I was seeing improvements, but then I also plateaued and then my mouth exploded and I was. I
0: was done with the meds at that point. Okay, so now you had gone to a conference before this where Dr. Horowitz had given you some information that led you to believe that perhaps you had Bartonella. You also now took a traditional Western blot, which is indicating that you are suffering from Borrelia burgdorferi. Did you think that you should be looking for any other bacteria, virus, or parasites before you began to use a treatment protocol.
1: Yeah. I will tell you, I'm like, I'm my own Guinea pig. So a lot of this was just me learning on myself about all that. I very, very early on. In and
0: thank you, you for doing it, that. Right? That's, that's, yeah, crucial.
1: well, <laughs> it is the best way for me to learn is to try it on myself. Um, I'm also, as I have already stated, a horrible patient and I was directing treatment and I didn't really know what I was doing. And you know, you know, full disclosure, I just leapt in because I wanted to feel better and, um, didn't know anybody else at that point who I could see to help me through it. Um, so I forget what the original question was. I've gone on.
0: I'm just wondering why you started with the antibiotics that you started with, because you, you, you mm-hmm. you knew you had, you knew you had what has been traditionally defined as the Lyme bacteria, Mm -hmm. and you knew you likely had Bartonella because the information that Horowitz had given you led you to believe that you were were showing symptoms that suggested you had Bartonella, right? So I just wanna know what your thought process was on why you started with the antibiotics that you did. Mm.
1: Yeah, I just tried to kind of start with the basics. Um, And I thought about things like rifampin um, and other methods, but I was a little afraid of the herxing and the side effects from that because I was still trying to work and, and live life. Um, and I eventually after antibiotics, I went into herbs and I started working with an herbalist and was, I did more testing. I, I got more treatment and more a uh, comprehensive treatment through the herbs um, as my next phase. Cause I also realized, okay, I'm plateauing. There's probably other things going on. The antibiotics seem to be done doing what they were going to do, at least the ones that I'm on. I don't like the side effects of these. I need to go a different route. I need someone to help me. I need to stop being my own doctor.
0: So So I am really excited to talk to you about about the herbs, but I don't want to get there yet because I want (laughs) to stay with the Herxing. Now, what is Herxing and were you taught about Herxing when you were in medical school?
1: I was taught about Herxing in medical school. The full name is the Herxheimer reaction, um, which is named after a couple of dermatologists who noticed that their syphilis patients were having these profound reactions to the treatments for syphilis. Um, and so we call it Herx for short. So I was taught about it in med school, but I didn't really know too much about like what it meant or what it is. Um, but it's really your immune reaction, your system's reaction to the die-off of the bacteria. Um, you know, the traditional thinking is you kill the bacteria, all of its guts explode with its toxins into your system. Those toxins create a reaction in your body. And that's that Herxheimer or die off reaction, kind of overwhelming the system. And physiologically what's happening is the cytokine storm. You're getting these inflammatory messengers, these cytokines in a large amount in your system that can overwhelm the system. But those, when it, when you get that induction of those cytokines, you get symptoms. They're inflammatory. They can make you feel really crummy. So that's what's happening when you're getting a Herxheimer reaction.
0: Okay. So let's walk that back. What is a cytokine and what role does it play in your immune system?
1: Cytokines are messengers and there's a bunch of different cytokines in your system. And some of them are inflammatory and some of them will stop. They're anti-inflammatory um and it's your system trying to talk to itself and say hey something's happening in my left arm send everything over there to help fix it um and they you know it's a cascade so one sets off another one sets off another one and then you get a burst of okay. reaction
0: so let's stay with that for a second so a cytokine is a trigger of a immu- of an immune reaction correct
1: the immune but, reaction is the trigger to create a cytokine.
0: Okay. So, so But I guess my question is, how does your immune system begin to attack whatever it needs to attack to either protect your body or to heal your body? Is that what a cytokine does? That it triggers the operation of the immune system, or am yeah. I incorrect about that?
1: No, I think that, yeah, you make sense. Yep.
0: Okay. So, so now, so you have the cytokines, which now trigger an immune reaction. Your immune system is now beginning to either heal something that has been injured or attack something that is, uh, that is attacking your system, correct? Yes. So now how do the cytokines ultimately stop working uh, once they've completed their responsibilities?
1: The body is a system of checks and balances. So in a normal working system, when you've got this reaction setting off saying, hey, this needs to be fixed. Once it's fixed, then there's other markers there to go, okay, we're good, we're fixed now, we can all calm down and go home. That's in a normal working system, we've got those markers there to say, we're done.
0: Okay, so now you've talked about an inflammatory response. What is an inflammatory response and how does that help the body either to heal or to stop a bacteria from attacking the body?
1: So I think, uh, you know, a good analogy is if you sprain your ankle. So you sprain your ankle and you get your ankle becomes swollen and hot. That's inflammation. That's your body sending signals and healing immune cells to your ankle to heal. It's got to heal. And part of that's what's happening in that process is you create heat, um, you create swelling to, to trigger that healing. Now, once that ankle is better and that inflammation like has done its job and the, the cytokines and the messengers and the white blood cells and all the good things and have fixed your ankle, that goes away. Right. So in a normal working body, the inflammation goes away, the redness goes away, the ankle starts to work better.
0: Okay. And, so, and uh, yeah. th- does that happen as a consequence of other cytokines turning off the immune response?
1: Right. Yeah. There are sig- yeah. Okay. There's, yeah. There's on signals, there's off signals. It's a checks and balance system.
0: Okay, so when it's working properly. (laughs) So now talk to us about when it's not working properly and what a cytokine storm is.
1: Yeah, so a cytokine storm is the overwhelming of the system that can happen from these reactions. And think of, you know, there are gentle storms and there are raging storms. There's different degrees of hurricanes, right? So, and then, you know, to go back to the ankle analogy, that's a mild storm that's, you know, let's go fix that. And it goes away. Um, when you get triggered by an infection, for example, that your body says, okay, we have to, you know, go fix that. What can happen is there's such a viral load or there's such so much inflammation or that your system gets overwhelmed that the cytokines and the inflammation has gone so haywire and that shutoff valve no longer works. And so you can get an overwhelming response to the system. And again, it's going to be in varying degrees. So that cytokine storm can overwhelm your system so much that, you know, you go into organ failure. It can be that severe, okay? But it can also be more mild that you can take some vitamin C and some glutathione some other anti-inflammatory and anti-cytokine things to help calm it down so it goes away Faster on its own.
0: So, is it possible that you could have a cytokine reaction or a, a, a cytokine storm that ultimately results in you dying rather than from the bacteria, for example, that the that the initial cytokine trigger was designed to stop?
1: Yes, yes, and I'm you know to to be up to date. I guess that's kind of what's happening with COVID and the people who are getting really, really, really sick and on ventilators and things from COVID, it's the inflammatory response, that cytokine response that is triggering their system to go into that. It's not the virus itself. It's the body's reaction to the virus that it can't keep in check that is just continuing to cause more and more and more problems that snowballed out of control to where the organs are failing. Their, their lungs are no longer breathing properly.
0: So would I be right to conclude that the people who are dying from COVID are not really dying from COVID, but from their body's overreaction to the COVID? Yes. So Dr. Kelly, you now pivot from your traditional treatment and you now turn to herbs. And I'm fascinated every time I hear a traditionally trained doctor tell me they move into the herbal community. Tell me what triggered in you a desire to move from the training that you had traditionally used and studied to now using something that I'm assuming you were not trained about in medical school, herbs.
1: Yes, was not trained on herbs in medical school. That is correct. Um, I was grateful um, and blessed enough to be working at an integrative medicine clinic when I was going through all of this Lyme um, initial treatments with myself. Um, so I had access to acupuncturists and herbalists and homeopaths and people that I could pick their brains about. And see what they knew about it and see and learn and know on a, cl- like on a real basis that I had patients that were seeing these people and getting better on herbs, on acupuncture and other things when conventional treatments were not helping them. So I saw that on a day-to-day basis and I knew these women and I trusted them and I saw their brilliance and knew that antibiotics were no longer working for me. And that I needed to go a different route. And I had these people at my fingertips that I could utilize that could help direct treatment. So I could sit back and be the patient um, and who had tools that were different than mine.
0: So you were watching these brilliant women heal people in a way that you weren't able to heal based on your traditional training. And that's what triggered you to move in another direction with your own health journey. Correct. Okay, so what did you do? What what herbs did you take and and what worked and didn't work for you?
1: I took a combination of things and some of them were Chinese and I will never be able to tell you what they were um, because they were Chinese herbs and I trusted my herbalists that they were the right things for me. I also did a lot of the kind of thoroughbreds, if you will, in the herbal world for lime, like Japanese knotweed and cat's claw. Um but I went on and off of things depending on how my symptoms were and what was popping up.
0: All right, so we, we've had a lot of our prior um, podcast guests describe Lyme disease as an onion. And uh, they've used that metaphor to say you have to peel away one level before you can get to the next to the next and the next. So if, if, I don't know if you, whether you like that metaphor or not, but if you do, was that something that was happening with you where you were taking, you were working in combination with an Eastern and Western practitioner, you being the Western practitioner, your herbalist as your Eastern practitioner, and the two of you are working together to get through each level of your illness. Tell us what that was like and when you knew something was working and when you knew something wasn't working and what caused you to pivot from one herb to another.
1: So slowly but surely symptoms would start to improve. I would be able to do more than I could. And it's akin to seeing a baby every single day. You don't know how fast they're growing, but the people who see that baby once a month, like, wow, that baby has shot up and changed. When you're in the middle of it and you're changing slowly but surely day by day, you don't necessarily see all the changes that other people are watching in you. So, you know, uh, reached out to my friends and community too and said, you know, what's different? what do you see? Like, where are you going? So that was very helpful for me too, to kind of gain some other insights, but it was just, I ended up honestly being pretty much the same level of exhaustion at the end of every day, but I was able to do more in the day. Like I was able to accomplish more. I was able to think more clearly. I was, you know, slowly, but surely things would get better. And if I would plateau somewhere or a new symptom would arise, or, you know, maybe the brain fog was more prevalent than the gut issues, you know, then we would adjust the herbs accordingly. Um every couple months I would change things up. Um, you with my practitioner helping me through that to adjust all the way.
0: So how did you feel as a traditionally trained doctor that you were now working with an herbalist and getting results from an herbalist that you weren't able to get for yourself through your traditional training?
1: This stuff is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like herbs are so cool. They do so many things for us, you know, and I don't think we tap into that in conventional medicine at all. We're so fixed on this one drug for one issue when herbalists are going, no, 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 it's the entire turmeric root and all of the different pieces parts that are creating a symphony and herbs work better together as a team. And they're not only killing the antibiotics, they're also helping to lower the cytokines. And they're also trying to repair your collagen and you know all of the good things that they're doing too. It just, wow, like herbs are really cool. Why aren't we using these more? We should be using these more.
0: Okay, so you're now on this path where you're beginning to heal, you're thinking more clearly, you're, you're just doing better overall. And now talk about what impact this is having on your professional journey. You're now learning more and more about integrative medicine. You're learning more about Eastern medicine. How is this changing you professionally?
1: Well, I dove into Lyme with my patients too. And so you start, start seeing it and then you start testing for it. And then every, you, know, you start seeing all these people come back positive, And then you start treating them and they start getting better. And it's just, you know, you've pulled that string on the sweater and it's just the whole thing unravels. And you see people that I started to see people who I I had been working with for a while even, and we couldn't get them better. And then we started to to move the needle and they started to get better and people were getting their lives back. And it was just so cool to see those changes that, you know, I just dug in and started to really learn as much as I could, not just for myself, but for my patients about what Lyme is and what the co-infections are and how do we help this and what are the medications and what are the herbs and how does acupuncture help and what is a Herxheimer and just full frontal dive dove in to learn as much as possible. And then, you know, you send that stuff out into the universe and I started getting Lyme patient after Lyme patient and pretty quickly my patient's load was mostly Lyme patients. That was, you know, the mainstay of what I was seeing and started to get really busy trying to help the Lyme patients.
0: Was it surprising to you that there was such a large patient community that your practice became almost an exclusive Lyme practice?
1: It was initially, but when you start to dig in, it it made much more sense, especially, you know, I don't live in an area where there's a lot of Lyme doctors, but there's a lot of Lyme and, you know, these people need people to help them. And, um, you know, I think, can, you know, instill in that conventional sense where doctors for, you know, really can lose their license and, and get ostracized for treating this, you know, and kind of dipping your toe in and, and, and jumping into that deep end was a little scary to begin with. But then once you, see, well, because no one wants, I don't, I don't want to lose my license. I want to keep practicing medicine. I've worked so hard to get here. I'm finally in a place where I'm feeling better and I'm feeling fulfilled and helping people get better, I don't want to. I don't want to throw all that away. Um, but you know, I just closed my eyes and jumped in because Lyme patients need help, and I felt better. And I, you know, we, we got to shout this from the rooftops. This is a real thing that needs to be treated.
0: But Dr. Keller, what, what I'm asking you is, why did you think there was the possibility that your career would be threatened if you were helping people who were sick? Get better. I'm I'm confused about that
1: because there's still a lot of um, legal issues. It's less so now in the state of Illinois. Actually, we're a lot more protected now. But you know, there are physicians who are losing their license and their livelihood because they were treating Lyme patients. They were giving patients medicine, antibiotics for longer than two weeks, and you know, health boards and medical boards were ostracizing them and stripping them of their license and they're and calling them frauds. And it was a very real scary place to be. And that's one of the things that kept me from getting into line probably a year or two. Like I could have gotten into a year or two sooner, but I knew there was controversy around it and I was just starting in my career and I was afraid to, to go there. It's, it's better now, but 10 years ago it was, it was a much, it still is a scary place, but it was a scarier place.
0: Let's talk about the insurance companies. How did insurance companies treat you once you moved over to the integrative community of practitioners? And um, did you have any concerns that the insurance companies would attack you or try to encourage the licensing boards to investigate you?
1: Um, not really. I didn't really necessarily worry about insurance. Um, I, spent, <laughs> I spent a lot of time learning how to code and write and make sure my notes were insurance uh, savvy. Um, so I wasn't necessarily worried about the insurance companies um, coming after me, I guess.
0: Great. So talk to us about how your healing um, developed and, and, and where are you now?
1: I'm in, I'm in a great place. Yeah, I feel like I'm. I've got it under very, very good control. Uh, I did antibiotics. We talked about I did herbs. I also went and did a pretty intensive IV therapy.
0: Okay, right, let's uh, talk about that. So you, so you went from antibiotics to herbs to now IV. What type of a- IV therapy did you utilize?
1: I did ozone, UV, uh, silver protocol, Myers cocktail, glutathione. Kind of, I went and did a boot camp. Um, of ID treatments.
0: And and how did you locate that boot camp and who supervised your treatment?
1: I, I met a doc at a line conference who did all of those treatments and who was happy to to help treat me and, and get me through. Um, well, I had done enough research on my own to know like what kind of treatments I wanted to do for myself. And so that's yeah, that's how I kind of found myself there.
0: So talk to us about what level of healing you were able to achieve through your first traditional antibiotic treatment, what level of healing you were able to achieve through your, um, through your herbs, and then ultimately, what level of, of health were you able to achieve through the IV therapies?
1: I think each treatment brought me to a higher level. You know, and once like that level was reached, I had to go try and, to find something else. So each time I just got better and better and better. And, you know, this is a journey over five years or so, um, of getting better after being sick for, I don't know, 15 prior to that, um, which is a pretty typical story, but the IVs are really what sealed the deal for me. Um, and so that's, that's why I have IV therapies as an option for my patients I don't think they're right for everybody, but there are some people like that's what they need are the IVs. And I'm in a place now where like things are good. Things are really good. I know how to maintain my health when things are slipping. It's usually because I'm stressing out too much and I need to sleep more. Okay. (laughs) so
0: I don't want to get there yet because I want to put some meat on the bone. So what weren't you able to do before you started using the antibiotics? And what were you able to do after you took your antibiotic treatments?
1: Oh, you're asking me to go back deep into the recesses of my mind, and I'm not sure if I'm going to remember specific
0: And that's okay. If you don't remember, I just, but I'd really like our listeners to understand when you pivoted and what type of changes you were able to think more clearly, you're able to work longer hours, you were able to do a better job with your patients, and then you, and then it continued to improve. I just like to get a sense of uh, of when you would suggest that people think about pivoting from one treatment protocol to another,
1: I mean, as a clinician, generally, if people are stagnant for anywhere from like two weeks to two months, if they're just we're just not seeing that that needle move at all we've we've got to switch we've got to go to something else um, you know personally, like the antibiotics, I knew I was done when my face reacted, and my my system was like yelling at me that I was done with that. Like I needed no more. Um, and when the herbs were got to, the herbs helped really with the energy, especially get that energy up, but it still wasn't where I needed it to be. I was still napping a lot. I still wasn't where I wanted to go, but I couldn't get past that spot. Like I, like I, I was stuck. I definitely was stuck at that point and little things were moving, but I, I just, I wasn't, I needed an oomph at that point. Um, And so, you know, and personally, the the comments were, all right, this is clearly my body saying it's done. And I can't, like, I'm stuck. Like, I'm doing all the things. I'm doing all the good things. I'm following all the rules. And I can't get to that next level. I need to, to kind of shift things up.
0: Do you believe that you'd have as much insight into when your patients need to pivot if you didn't have your own personal experiences with plateaus and pivots?
1: I don't believe I would be able to help patients at all without it. Sorry, that's not true. I don't believe I would be able to help patients as much as I do if I hadn't gone through it myself. Absolutely. That gives you that kind of, you can kind of pick it up on people. You can ask questions differently when you've been through it yourself, when you know what it feels like.
0: So now let's talk about some of the other changes you had in your career. I I know that you're uh, a member of the board of ILADS. So let's talk about how that arc of your career began to change, where you started to go from um, being a traditional doctor to be an integrative doctor to now specializing largely in the Lyme community. And what types of changes you made in the courses you were taking and the conferences you were going to and the boards that you were sitting on?
1: Mm -hmm. ILADS was a great driving force for me it was they have a wonderful patient I'm sorry wonderful physician education and you know you go to those conferences and you're just like wow there's so much information and so you almost have to go a couple years in a row to really start to solidify everything that everything that they have to teach you Um, and I took advantage of their preceptorship so I went and did a week um, with Dr. Ann Corson outside of Philadelphia so I was able to learn a lot more about herbs and other, you know, other modalities to help treat people and help get people feeling better in a deep dive. Um, and to have that connection with, you know, another physician who has been doing this for a long time was invaluable. Um, and you start to see then Lyme develop a lot more in other conferences too, that people are talking about it at other integrative conferences, you know, back in the day, ILADS was the place to go. There wasn't really other places to go to learn about it, but we're starting to see it in some other places now. But it's just so grateful and so interested in what ILADS do do and how they help train physicians and try to get that word out to providers that chronic Lyme exists. Here's all the science and evidence behind it. Here's how you can help to treat it. So I started to get more and more involved. I started to help plan some of the conferences, um, and then I was asked to run for a seat on the board. So I took advantage of that. And I'm just starting my second year now on their board of directors.
0: Congratulations. And thank you. Thanks. Yeah. So what other types of um, organizations are you uh, active in, in addition to ILADS?
1: So I am a member of the um, Institute of Functional Medicine. I really like the functional medicine approach to, to medicine, in general it's very scientific and evidence-based and it's very much why why is this happening why is this happening why is this happening and getting to that root cause which i think is invaluable for lyme patients because they're so complex and each one has to be treated on a case-by-case basis that having that functional medicine background is like necessary to really help these people heal because you cannot treat Line with the cookie cutter approach. I wish it were that easy, but it's not. And so you have to be able to adapt to each patient as they come in and what they need. Um, I'm also um, with the uh, American Academy of um, uh, Integrative Holistic Medicine, and um, I'm also a member of the Ozone American Academy of Ozone Therapy. Um, and um, I just joined the Peptide Society as well. So I'm always trying to learn new ways um, to help people and and try to get the best education about the different new modalities that I try to bring in.
0: You're doing an unbelievable amount of um, work in the Lyme community and after healing yourself and changing your career path and and, and helping out Lyme patients, um, you're doing a lot of outreach in a lot of different areas to try to make changes to the medical community so that medicine can respond better to the challenges presented by Lyme patients. And I can't thank you enough for doing all that you're doing. So tell us how we as patients of Lyme can get a better experience from interfacing with the medical community, because everyone can't be your patient now. Unfortunately, there's only one of you, and we all can't come to you. And there's only one Dr. Horowitz, and we all can't go to Dr. Horowitz. So how can we as patients who can't work with only the two of you. Um, or maybe third, we, we have to add in Dr. Rawls. How can we get a better experience when interfacing with uh, traditional doctors?
1: I think it's important that patients have an open mind and open heart as well. I think it's really easy for us to get mad at the doctors for not knowing enough and not helping them. Um, If you were kind of alluding to this earlier that we have to also understand where those doctors are coming from and their education and their background. Um, I think it's important to seek out providers whom you can connect with who will listen to you. And so even though they may not know what Lyme is, if they can listen to you and they can help support you in the ways that you need to be supported and help get you to the places that you need to be. So if they can't help you, they're willing to say, let's, let's ask more. Let's dive more. Let's get you to where you need to be to the right person instead of the docs who just kind of shrug it all off and say, your labs are fine. You know, go see a psychiatrist. Um, you can arm yourself with information and, you know, kind of know that a lot of docs are going to probably roll their eyes at you and, and tell you you're crazy for, for thinking you have Lyme because Lyme doesn't exist. I mean, you know, unfortunately I hear these stories every day that people get treated this way when they talk to other doctors. So, you know, just try to kind of arm yourself with information, keep an open heart and know that the doctors are, it's not that they're coming at you from a bad place. It's just, they don't know what they don't know. Um, and, um, you know, try to find even conventional doctors in the mainstream who are willing to listen to you um, and, and be your advocate.
0: If anyone who is listening to this podcast wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that?
1: Probably the best way is either through um, our website where you can, there's a link to send us an email directly from our website, which is caseintegrativehealth.com. You can also see, find us on Facebook or Instagram. Messages there too. You can give us a call directly, but that Ember's on the website too. Do
0: you have any tools that you offer to patients who are not in your state? Meaning, if somebody's from another state and they wanted to work with you, would they be able to work with you mm-hmm. um, either remotely or in some other fashion?
1: Absolutely. You know the the uh, the lines are a little blurred right now about telemedicine, um, <laughs> thanks to COVID. Uh, generally speaking, though, um, my out of patient or out of town out-of-state patients, I would really love to be able to meet you person in person first. Have you come in. Let's meet. Let's talk. Let me listen to your lungs. Let me listen to your heart. Let me kind of actually have an assessment with you. And then after that, we can do phone or video visits. Um, I prefer to see you once a year. Um, at that point, again, some of the, these legal lines of telemedicine are blurred a little bit. Um, so we're kind of maybe even opening up our territories and our bounds and seeing what we can do. Some of those laws are still very up in the air, but I have patients from all over um, that we talk to. And um, yeah, I, you know, ideally again, would love to meet you in person and love. I have people that come from Florida and they would come every single time if it weren't for COVID, they would come up every single time for their visit, um, which is awesome. I'd rather have people like in my office, but you know, we can do things remotely. There's telemedicine's a whole new world. And so the more people we can help, happy to do it. And especially in places where there are no Lyme docs, like you have to travel to find a Lyme doc. So we're trying to make that a little bit easier.
0: Well, I want to let our listeners know that we would a- actually introduce to you by Alec Ma- Alex, Alex who is abs- absolutely one of the superstars in the Lyme community and anything Alex tells me to do, I do. So I want to tell the rest of the folks who are listening to this podcast that if Alex Moresco tells you, you should be working with Dr. Kelly. I strongly urge you to work with Dr. Kelly. So Dr. Kelly, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate you sharing as much as you did. Alex, if you're listening, you're absolutely right. Dr. Kelly is a superstar.
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Casey Kelly. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Casey Kelly, please visit her Instagram page at Case Integrative Health. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of this post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank our listeners for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.